Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Dorothy Fields is one name that ought to be better known. As an author and lyricist, she wrote more than 400 songs, including The Way You Look Tonight and Hey Big Spender. She wrote the book for Irving Berlin's hit musical, Annie Get Your Gun. Director Adam Copeland of Flying Carpet Theater Company created a production for the Bremen Museum titled Dorothy Fields, The Sunny Side of the Street. The show will stream beginning this weekend from the Bremen and in honor of Women's History Month. We'll listen to a conversation with Adam Copeland on Fields' exceptional place in the Great American Songbook. First, rock collides with classical in a Georgia state of mind. If this were Sesame Street, I could say today's show is brought to you by the number three, We get to hear from three illustrious musicians, all with Georgia ties, who will perform a night of Georgia music Saturday at the Grand Opera House in Macon. Joining me now via Zoom are rock stars Mike Mills of R.E.M., Chuck Lavelle of the Rolling Stones, and internationally acclaimed violinist Robert McDuffie. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Yes, thanks very much. Thank you for having us. Oh, it is my thrill. Bobby, the last time I saw you and Mike was just before you performed A Night of Georgia Music at Symphony Hall in September of 2019. Chuck, I don't think you were able to come to the radio station that day, but we got to sing your praises. <laughs> now I can ask, what were your thoughts when Bobby and Mike approached you about doing a Night of Georgia music concert? Well, first, I have the highest respect for both of my friends, uh, Mike and Bobby. And it was an honor to be asked. And of course, I think you know the story, Lois, that uh, Bobby had asked Mike if he would write a 
concerto for rock band and a violin and strings. And he did so, and they went and did a, a tour with a few different orchestras playing that concerto. And then they came off of that tour, took a little break and thought, well, what else can we do to enhance this? And then I think it was Mike perhaps that had the concept or Bobby and Mike together of uh, a night of Georgia music. And so they, they called me up and asked me if I'd be interested. And I said, yeah, man. So we put it together. We did, I think, five shows, as you mentioned, in 2019. And we're very excited to be able to do it again here in Macon, in our hometown, a couple of us hometown anyway. And I think Mike has a very strong connection to Macon as well. So here we go. Oh, wow. I read that attending a concert by Ray Charles was transformative for you. Would you tell us more about the impact of that experience? Absolutely, yes. It was when I was probably 13 years old or maybe even 12, and my sister had a date to go see Ray at the Coliseum in Tuscaloosa, where we grew up. And uh, my parents had something to do and, and they didn't really want to leave me alone. So they asked Judy, my sister, if she would take me along with her date. And Judy uh, was very gracious to accept and take me. I was already very interested in music, already playing some music at that time. And I'd seen a, a few live things, but I'd never seen anything like Ray Charles. And of course, Ray was amazing, but it wasn't just Ray. It was the Ray Litz. It was Fathead Newman on saxophone. Billy Preston was playing Hammond B3 at the time. And Ray gave Billy a little section in the middle of the set for him to sing a song and get out front and dance. And I just walked away just profoundly affected by it. And I thought to myself, if I could ever be in a band, not necessarily like that, but if I could ever be in a band that could move people the way that that moved me, that would be a pretty good goal to have. So uh, I'm still hanging on to that. <laughs> I think the rest is history. Bobby, you have long been dedicated to reaching beyond a traditional classical audience without abandoning those listeners. How does Mike's concerto for violin, rock band, and string orchestra achieve that goal? Well, it helps me connect to a different culture, and we need to stay curious. And, and I cert certainly have learned so much from Mike and his, his musicianship and his work ethic and, and his fans. I think I had to have a glass of wine before I got the nerve up to ask him to do this, but I've, you know, I've been playing a lot of the standard, I call them the dead white European male composers. I still love those guys. And I, I've worked with, as you know, Lois, with a lot of living American composers, especially Philip Glass, who had written his second concerto for me. And I wanted to play another premiere of a great American composer. And so I went to Mike and just threw out this idea of, of a concerto for violin and, and rock band, and he didn't turn me away and told me in the dinner that he was already thinking of some tunes. And I don't know, I just think if we stay stuck, we being classical musicians, it's, we're, gonna, we're not going to be relevant for much longer. So I just think we do need to connect with a wider culture and do it because we love it, not because we have to.
important. I also think as far as listeners and concert attendants and Chuck, Mike, I hope you feel free to chime in here. I think when radio started formatting more narrowly, that that didn't help the cross-pollination of music because I think people used to listen to radio stations, which had a, a more relaxed approach to programming. And then I think starting in the late 80s and 90s, you had a country station, you had a funk station. It, everything was segregated. Do you think that those categories have hurt? You know, Lois, I have long been on record as saying that, that formatting was one of the worst things to ever happen to, certainly to radio, but to music in general. Uh, unfortunately, it was a guy from Atlanta who came up with that brilliant idea and, and got rich off of teaching radio stations that if they played Stairway to Heaven once an hour, they could, they could attract and keep one certain kind of listener. Unfortunately, that marginalizes people who don't want to hear that and might want to hear something else. Uh, there's a whole thing going on now as, as well with a lot of the streaming services where if you, you click like this song and their algorithms will generate more of that type of song for you to listen to, which even further limits any curious exploration you may want to do. So that plays into part of what, what I thought about this was on a personal level, when Bobby asked me to write the concerto, I thought, okay, well, that that is certainly a challenge as a way to to do something after REM's disbandment that would certainly stretch any capabilities I may have had. But on a more macro level, both Bobby and I agree that, that while we are fans of classical music, it needs to bust out of some of the restrictions that it's had low these many years. So uh, it was a personal challenge to see if we could, could, could come up with something that would draw fans of, of both genres or any genre and maybe show people that classical music doesn't have to be terrifying. It has a lot more in common with the music that you may like than you think. So it's been a real thrill to be able to do that. And then, of course, the addition of uh, when we expanded that to, to make this entire evening a night of Georgia music, the opportunity to, to showcase not only Chuck and Bobby's virtuosity, but the sheer volume of incredible music that's been you know, either inspired by Georgia or created by you know, Georgia artists. That was a big thrill. I mean, I, uh, Georgia's my home and always has been, and, I, and I'm just thrilled to promote it in, in this particular way. Yeah, and we will get to the rest of the program soon. Mike, when we last spoke, you talked about being a melody guy. How did that inform your approach to writing this concerto? I am that, and it, it really is, it is sort of my raison d'etre musically. I, I love coming up with melodies. I I simply create the chords so that I can put melodies on them. And that may seem you know, obvious, but, but it, not everyone looks at melody in quite so important a way as I do. And so you know, in doing these, in doing the concerto itself, I just really tried to create a bed that would be interesting on its own if possible. But then to really add the, the kicker would be whatever melodies I could put over it. And with the help of uh, David Malamud, our, our wonderful arranger, 
I was just free to add as many melodies as I could think of, you know, and, and I just really enjoy that. I, I find it, it's seldom that a song has too many melodies for me. You know, with, with the full string section, you're just able to put melodies and move them around from place to place and alter them slightly and still have them be interesting. And, and uh, that was part of the fun and the challenge of this for me. Chuck, you are self-taught, I read. How does it feel to be at the keyboard within the context of this piece? Granted, it isn't a traditional concerto, but that's part of its beauty. Was this an adventure for you? Well, I have to uh, say straight away that uh, I have not been involved in the concerto. Uh, Mike does some keyboards as well as some guitar and, and other instruments during that performance. So, you know, my participation is on the uh, Night of Georgia Music. But let me just say that what a brilliant idea this was. I can think of no state that has so many beautiful songs either written about it or written by Georgians. And as Mike has said before, uh, the hard part is to figure out what to leave out. You know, you could do an eight hour concert, I think, easily with all the great songs. But I think Mike and Bobby both did a brilliant job in putting the set list together. We can't divulge everything because no. we want it to be interesting at the time we do it. But uh, it really is a wonderful, diverse set. And hey, listen, you know, <laughs> I'm thrown from my rock world into some very heavy arrangements. And I'm glad uh, Mike mentioned David Malamud because he really is brilliant. And the arrangements that he has done on these songs is just outstanding and challenging. <laughs> and so, you know, I've been doing my Hannon and putting in two hours a day. Bobby says he's been putting in four. I can't keep up with that, but. <laughs> <laughs> Practicing those keyboard scales. Yeah, doing the best I can, Lois, doing the best I can. Yeah, I think you've done pretty well to now. We're confident you'll pull it off. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with Mike Mills of REM, Chuck Lavelle of the Rolling Stones, and renowned violinist Robert McDuffie. Their show, A Night of Georgia Music, will be performed this Saturday at the Grand Opera House in Macon. The third movement of this concerto has sentimental meaning for Mike. Would you talk about this section, which is titled Sunny Side Up? Well, my, my son Julian was visiting me while I was working on the concerto, and I was showing him some, some things I'd been thinking about and working on. And while I was sitting in, in my music room with him, I came up uh, with those chords. And now they're not the most startlingly original chords in the world, but what you do on top of them is what makes it special. And I was just inspired by him being there. So, you know, it, it's an odd little title, granted, but it, it does express the fact that my son was there and he was an inspiration for me. And, and I just wanted to include him in this in some way.
I'm curious about your creative process as a composer here. Thinking of Bobby's playing, what comes to mind for me immediately is the warmth of his tone, as well as his technical precision. With this concerto, how did you write for Bobby's style in particular? Was he in your head? Well, he, he was definitely in my head at certain difficult moments in the composition. I was I had some very choice things to say about him, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I'd never written for violin specifically before. I did a little bit of research into it, but on the other hand, I figured a melody is a melody and David Malamud will help me if I wander too far afield. So he, he really helped me with, with some direction and ideas about what to do. And, but the, my favorite quote from, from David was as we were working on some of these uh, arrangements, you know, there's some very challenging passages for Bobby on the violin. And David said, I said, David, that seems really hard. He goes, we have to take advantage of Bobby's virtuosity. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and so I said, well, good, make it harder. So uh, <laughs> Bobby, listening back to the concerto, I was struck by something I don't think I noticed as much the first time. You're playing just ever so subtly suggests fiddling in the Appalachian, which essentially is Scottish and Irish style fiddling. Is that intentional? A little bit, especially in Mike's second movement. We're, we're hearkening back to the, you know, okie finokie. His, his playing's in my inner ear. Uh, I played a lot with Edgar Meyer, the great double bassist to, um, he's also beloved by bluegrass aficionados. I'm not, I'm certainly not gonna say I'm anything like that, but that is, that, that music is in me and uh, that style is there. So I think there are some really juicy parts of the concerto where I can do that. Also a little bit in, yeah, I'm not going to mention the, the piece because we don't want to give it away, but there is a piece in the Night of Georgia Music where I can incorporate that. Oh, I hope it's The Devil uh, Went Down to Georgia. Uh, I can, Please tell us. Uh, I, can, I can do that as well, but it's a purely an, uh, uh, a real American work, and I feel very American playing it. Oh, my. Not just Mike's beautiful concerto, but all these Georgia, obviously we, we feel close to our, to our state playing these great pieces, but I do, I mean, I really do have to say, I, I don't want this to be an obsequious fest here, but I, I'm telling you, playing with two icons, I'm telling you, usually when you hear, oh, I'm playing with this icon or whatever, you, that, that means they can't play anymore. These guys can still play, <laughs> you 
know, I mean, Chuck only has to practice two hours a day because he's already, he's got the chops. I have to practice four hours a day. You sound like Chuck. It's pretty awesome, Lois. Pretty awesome. And, and they're so humble. We must talk about the other works on the program. You have, each of you has hinted at them. Would you tell us about the other stellar Georgians whose music will be played? We've let out a few of the songs uh, that are worth mentioning as uh, very nice teasers. Uh, we do want to keep some of them a surprise. But I would say, uh, you know, it's just fascinating to, to when I was looking at all the choices and all the possibilities that we had and trying to strike a balance between genres and, and eras and, you know, types of music, just, just whatever I could find. It was just it was just fascinating and so much fun to see which ones actually lent themselves to this approach. And you know, virtually all of them did. You know, some are are just total pinnacles, but they're all interesting. So one of my favorites that we do, which is actually one of my favorite songs in the world, is Midnight Train to Georgia. Of course, that's one that has the the double connection of being both about Georgia and uh, having a Georgia artist who performed it originally and made the hit of its Gladys, the great Gladys Knight, one of the most underrated singers, I think, in, in the history of R&B, especially. So, you know, just that sort of thing. And there are a couple of other songs that between, you know, once David Malmood and I got through with them, they, they, they became something else. They, they became much bigger than I would have expected because it just really, he really brings out the quality of the melody and the quality of, of the songwriting itself. So it's just been a real treat to, to showcase these songs that I like, because they're all favorites of mine. That's why they're in there. And uh, it's just been a real treat to, here, here's something I've always said. There's a great record, which is one thing, and then there's a great song. And a really great song will stand up to multiple types of interpretation, multiple genres. You know, My Girl by The Temptations, which we're not doing, of course, is, is one that has been recorded many times by many people and it's always great. So some of these songs, that's, that's the cool thing about these songs is they manage to survive and even thrive under a slightly different approach such as this one. Mm. I was hoping each of you would tell us what it is about the South and Georgia in particular here that lends itself to such a rich tradition of music? Well, I'll tell you what part of it is. The South has always been known for storytelling. And music is one of the great ways that you can tell a story, not just as a vehicle for words, but with the, with the melodies and the music itself, you can create a mood and environment and tell a story. And that's, that's one thing the South has always been known for, Georgia in particular. Why they have so many great musicians is really hard to say. It's just something about the state. The fact that we go from swamp to mountain to beach to, to pine barrens. You know, it's, it's just an incredibly diverse state with an incredible amount of history. And so there's so much to draw on for musicians to be, to be inspired by so many different aspects of life. The concert will be filmed for PBS and distributed nationwide. What can you tell us about the production of that program? We have hired a production company. The three of us 
you know, we, we're not going to try to put set off firecrackers and fireworks and all, and all of that on this. We want uh, some really great lighting. We want moods to be set, and I'm sure they will be. We, we have a great camera crew. We'll have multiple cameras all over. We uh, do have a dress rehearsal, which is going to be very helpful to go through that process and to see what works uh, camera angle wise and so forth. So a little bit of a work in progress, but really the music comes first. And uh, certainly we, we want great camera angles. We want great lighting, but we want all of that to enhance the music. That's the main thing. That is, that is absolutely correct. But I am very excited about the fact that this is the first time we've had uh, a dedicated lighting rig to use in coordination with the music itself. It will make the project more special. I mean, the great thing about lighting is maybe it's when you don't really notice it that it's so great. It's merely an enhancement that elevates the music. And that's kind of what we're after here. Nobody's going to be dazzled by the live show. That's not what we're looking for. We just want to create an experience. And, and of course, lighting is a big part of that. Very much as it is in theater. Exactly. Mike Mills of R.E.M., Chuck Lavelle of the Rolling Stones and internationally acclaimed violinist Robert McDuffie, A Night of Georgia Music, will be performed at the Grand Opera House in Macon this Saturday, March 5th. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment... A Women's History Month lesson from the Great American Songbook, Amplifying Atlanta. This is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Between 1928 and 1973, the lyricist and author Dorothy Fields wrote over 400 songs, including The Way You Look Tonight and Big Spender. As a librettist, she wrote the book for Annie Get Your Gun, collaborating with Irving Berlin. Back in 2017, when director Adam Copeland of Flying Carpet Theater Company discussed Dorothy Fields' legacy on City Lights, at the end of our chat, I suggested he create a show about Fields one day. Well, that day is here. 
Beginning this Sunday, the Bremen Museum will stream Adam Copeland's production, Dorothy Fields, The Sunny Side of the Street. In honor of Women's History Month, we'll listen back to that conversation now, beginning with an overview of Fields' legacy and impact. Dorothy Fields was one of the giants of the 20th century musical theater. She was a lyricist, as you mentioned, and she was also a libretticist. She wrote the books for Broadway musicals and conceived of them. Her list of collaborators looks like a who's who of all of the important people in Broadway for the last hundred years. She worked with Harold Arlen, Irving Berlin, Fred Astaire, Duke Ellington, Bob Fosse, Jerome Kern, Ethel Merman, Cole Porter, Bill Bojangles Robinson, Richard Rogers, Gwen Verdon. She, so she knew everybody. She worked with everybody. They all respected the heck out of her. When Obama gave his inauguration speech as the 44th president of the United States, he actually referenced lyrics by Fields. He said in the speech, starting today, we must pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and begin again the work of remaking America. And this alludes to the song Pick Yourself Up from the film Swing Time that she wrote the lyrics for. Hmm. So... Why don't we know more about her? Why is her name not a household word? I think you believe that sexism has something to do with this. I'd say so. I mean, if we made a list of all of the people who were the important musical theater contributors as writers, certainly there were a lot of great performers as women. But if we made a list of all the folks who were on the other side of the footlights, there wouldn't be that many women who were part of the list. And so Dorothy Fields comes along. She is the daughter of a great vaudevillian, a guy named Lou Fields, who was part of a vaudeville team called Weber and Fields. And they were famous for, amongst many other jokes, this joke that went something like, um, who was that lady I saw you with last night? And then the other one said, that was no lady. That was my wife. Uh, yeah. That's who it goes back to. But her daddy didn't want her in the theater. He didn't. He didn't. In fact, when uh, she announced that she was writing songs for a review that was going to happen on Broadway, he famously said, that is no thing for a lady to do. And she cleverly said, I ain't no lady. <laughs> I'm your daughter. <laughs> that's great. Well... Let's listen to the first song you've chosen. This dates from the year 1928. And if you don't say digga digga to your nature, you're gonna lose a papa so let those funny people smile, say how can that be a virgin I'll with digga digga do digga do digga digga do digga do Fields' cleverness as a lyricist was recognized pretty early. She was in her early twenties and she started collaborating with some songwriters of the day who were working for companies that were trying to get their songs out into the world. She got hired by reviews and then 
eventually by the Cotton Club, which that was a big gig. The Cotton Club was a major place where African-American performers would present. And uh, this this number, Digga Digga Do, was meant for a Cotton Club review. When it premiered, it's already got suggestive lyrics. The lyrics are things like, you love me and I love you, and when you love, it's natural to Digga Digga Do. <laughs> Um, but evidently, the star of this um, Cotton Club review actually put in even more suggestive lyrics, kind of scandalous lyrics. So there is Fields with uh, her dad, who, her, you know, who was this was you know going to be a proud moment, and the columnist Walter Winchell, like the you know, it's a packed house, and she whispers over to her father, "Dad, those are not the lyrics that I actually wrote." And evidently, Lou Fields, right after the number, ran up on stage took some applause because he was famous and said, everybody, I'd just like to announce, my daughter did not write those lyrics. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's an interesting start to a long and remarkable career. But what you're saying about um, the Cotton Club picking this up into Gallington, this was a milestone not only for feminism but also for race relations. I think that there there uh, had been a bunch of white writers for Cotton Club reviews, and uh, amongst them Harold Arlen, who we've talked about before. And everyone thought he was black. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I think the Cotton Club is a place where, in fact, there were much more porous lines of collaboration than many of the other places in the U.S. There, it, there was more of a natural way of people just trying to put out good work. There was some controversy about the next song we'll hear. I believe there was a lawsuit on behalf of Fats Waller Mm. that he actually composed this song, and not Jimmy McHugh. But there was no dispute about the words. That never came into the complaints. The words were written by Dorothy Fields. Grab your coat and get your hat. Leave your worry on the doorstep. Just direct your feet to the sunny side of the street. Can't you hear a pitter-pat? And that happy tune is your still. Life can be so sweet on the sunny side of the street. Okay, it is quite a testament to David Sedaris that I now hear him when I hear (laughs) Billie Holiday. Um, The Sunny Side of the Street. So that song was written for a review, and um, I think one of the things that is so interesting about it is that, of course, it's a standard and a classic. She was very young when she wrote these songs, and she's already showing such a deft handling of, of phrasing. She gets a tune, and she's able to place very colloquial lyrics in in into the the musical phrases in a way that actually enhances the musical phrases and there's just the right words to accommodate the leaps in the music and she has a way of making it all just seem so natural like it's just something that's occurring to somebody flowing right off the tongue this is complicated stuff sure and i read that um she was a serious poet. I mean, she submitted poetry regularly for publication, and no doubt that informs her work. No as question. A she, along with um, Gershwin and Harburg, two of the other prominent lyricists of the day, 
she would write poems. They were called smarty verses in the kind of <laughs> colloquial of the the way people spoke back then. So she would submit these smarty verses to publications. They'd get pub, um, published. But in addition to being able to play with words when they were just on their own, she had a real gift for taking tunes and sort of knowing what the right words to fit into the tune were to enhance the tune. And that, I think writing great poetry is one thing. Writing great lyrics is a connected skill, but a, a different one, and she excelled at both. Yeah, and she did not seek to impress. Uh, not to not to imply that she wasn't witty, but, I mean, my God, with Cole Porter, you're just amazed at some of these turns of phrase. She really was putting the vernacular in relief. I totally agree. And I think that that's part of what, if if you look at the totality of her work, she was also a, a book writer, and she was very much part of the whole generation that revolutionized musicals to make them fully integrated pieces where the song supported the story. So she really thought of, I think, the kind of story or the whole effect first before she thought of, oh, I'm just going to showcase my own wit. And that's uh, that's a, a humble act in service to the piece of art, but it, it, it really is part of her brilliance. <laughs> Dorothy Field's collaboration with Jerome Kern was stunning, and we're going to listen to one of the results of that collaboration, a truly iconic love song. Someday when I'm awfully low when the world is cold, I will feel a glow just thinking of you and the way you look tonight. Oh, but you're lovely with your smile so warm and your cheeks so soft. There is nothing for me but to love you Just the way you look tonight And that was Fred Astaire. Adam, as we were listening to that, I was reminded of something I've paid more attention to in recent years with more women film directors and TV writers and directors and it, it's the female gaze. I wonder if hearing these words, we have, you know, a glimpse into the female soul, what, what women would like to be told. This is not imagining what they would like to hear, but here was Dorothy Fields putting it out there. I really hope that that is exactly what you're saying was one of the reasons for her impact. And it's a shame that there weren't more people like her of the era. I think she had obviously these unique gifts and this tenacity to play in this club that was mostly men mm. and have the sort of wit and resilience to make it work. 
and also a, a, a unique point of view because of that. And so I, I do hope that uh, a big part of her impact has to do with that. Uh, the, the, the songwriter Ebb of Candor and Ebb mm-hmm. says every time he hears a Dorothy Fields song, he really feels that it's connected to her female point of view. City Lights contributor Adam Copeland from our 2017 discussion of lyricist Dorothy Fields. In addition to being City Lights musical theater and great American songbook expert, Copeland is the founder and artistic director of Flying Carpet Theater Company. We'll return with more of our conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my 2017 conversation with City Lights contributor Adam Copeland. In honor of Women's History Month, we've been discussing the legendary lyricist and author Dorothy Fields. Here, Copeland explains how Fields happened to write the book for Annie Get Your Gun. Well, she is obviously very famous as a lyricist. She also wrote the entire books for many musicals. Her most famous ones are Annie Get Your Gun and Sweet Charity, which we'll get to later. She wrote, as the book writer, three musicals with Cole Porter. And she had the ego where she knew she could write great lyrics, but when she worked with somebody else who also liked to write the lyrics, she said, you know what? That's great. You do that. And that exactly happened with Annie Get Your Gun. She was sitting around and reading an article about a sharpshooting contest in Coney Island. And this gives her the idea, hey, I should write a musical about (laughs) Annie Oakley. And my buddy Ethel Merman should be the lead. So she calls up Ethel Merman and pitches her the idea. Ethel Merman says, I'll do it. Ethel Merman is evidently, you know, the the phone call went through into the maternity ward. Ethel Merman had just had a baby. (laughs) Um, But Ethel Merman commits. They get Jerome Kern, who she had collaborated with on several film scores, and uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein are going to produce. And they've had all these huge hits. It's the the, the 40s and the the birth of this new integrated musical, and this is going to be a big one, and Jerome Kern's going to do it. And Jerome Kern dies of a heart attack in the middle of the process. I think he'd maybe written one song. So Dorothy Fields is terribly depressed, thinks, you know, maybe this whole idea is dead. But um, Rodgers and Hammerstein had the idea, the show must go on. And they called her in and they said, listen, we have an idea. We, th- we, know, we, we think we found another person who could write the songs. But if they do, they're not, you're not going to be able to write the lyrics anymore. And she said, oh, it's enough to write the book. Who are you thinking? And they said, Irving. And they, of course, meant Irving Berlin. And he was, he was a bit skeptical. Is this going to work out? He was 60. And uh, so, well, he, at the time, <laughs> you know, he was 20 years younger than the rest of the gang. Um, also, there was this new kind of fad of these integrated musicals. Yes. He hadn't done one. 
And uh, the the other thing that he was the most dubious about was the kind of country western vibe yeah. of it. Yeah, Ethel Merman, cowgirl, you don't usually think. Right, of it. right. And so uh, evidently Hammerstein said, don't even worry, just drop the G's off of all of your <laughs> verbs and you'll be fine. <laughs> so we're going to listen to... Ethel Merman's version of You Can't Get a Man with a Gun. Oh, my mother was frightened by a shotgun, they say. That's why I'm such a wonderful shot. I'd be out in the cactus and I'd practice all day. And now tell me what have I got? I'm quick on the trigger with targets not much bigger than a pinpoint i'm number one but my score with a feller is lower than a seller oh you can't get a man with a gun okay Uh, maybe in addition to dropping the g's they could have worked on those Brooklyn R's a little bit. I don't think anybody was worried it was such a hit. Yeah, amazing. And when you talked about um, how depressed she was about losing her friend, Dorothy Fields was about losing her friend Jerome Kern, and whether this show could continue, I'm reminded that there's no business like show business came from Annie Getcher. Yeah, it's it's kind of providential. You know, the... um, so powerful and clear was her book with where the songs should slot in and what 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 she was thinking about that Berlin got it and 12 days later he'd written half the score including the song we just heard so she provided the framework for him Dorothy Fields led a long and productive career she was active for 46 years almost up till her death And to apply the feminist metaphor about Ginger Rogers, everything the male songwriters did, but backwards and in high heels, Mm -hmm. she had a single happy marriage. She raised two children and still managed to work constantly producing these enduring songs by the likes of Cy Coleman. What was that collaboration like? We're getting later into the 20th mm, century. Yeah. So uh, the 50s were not uh, evidently a great decade for her. She, Her husband died. She had to raise the two kids by herself. Um, she gets into the 60s, and she doesn't perceive herself to be highly in demand. And Cy Coleman, a, a younger composer, asks if they could write some songs together. And she's kind of thrilled to be asked, and uh, they started working. Neil Simon, who is kind of both a wonder kid and now already an accomplished playwright, starts to, um, you know, writes the book for this. And they they collaborate and create Sweet Charity. One thing uh, that I think is especially notable is many, many, many of the critics, when they talk about this piece, mention that while many lyricists use the vernacular of their youth as they age. Dorothy Fields got more and more hip the older she got. She was plugged into the vernacular of the 60s as much as she had been to the 30s. So we don't hear words like 
swell. No, no. <laughs> no, and in fact, a, another sort of interesting tidbit about Sweet Charity is the two giant songs from it, uh, Big Spender and um, If My Friends Could See Me Now, were in some sense one of the last times, if not the last time, that Broadway showstoppers were also huge hits in the popular kind of um, billboard that year. Bob Fosse choreographed, didn't he? Oh, and directed. And directed. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Let's hear Big Spender. The minute you walked in the joint, I could see you were a man of distinction, a real big spender. Good looking, so refined. Say, wouldn't you like to know what's going on in my mind? So let me get right to the point. I don't pop my cork for every man I see. Hey, big spender, spend a little time with me. Wouldn't you like to have fun, fun, fun? How's about a few laughs, laughs? I could show you a. Okay, the standards are relaxing a bit (laughs) for lyrics, and as you said, she's hip. And you know, I wonder if if some of it was the fact that as a mother, she was more involved in raising her kids, Mm. and those teenagers, you know, helped. She, um, let me read you a little Neil Simon quote about working with her. She Neil Simon writes, she was tough, all business, and could meet a crisis with the best of them. She was the exception to the rule I mentioned about lyricist. It was easier for her to rewrite a song than to fight for one, and took less time. What I didn't know about her was that she was fond of a drink at dinner. She was even fonder of two or three drinks, even without dinner. When she appeared at the theater every night for the evening performance, she was dressed in her Park Avenue best, always looking elegant. She didn't stand too well, however, as a result of the martini or two, and often leaned on a friendly arm or a banister, but she never lost her dignity. And that, as it may be, at 9 o'clock in the morning, she was fresh, alert, and had already written a new set of lyrics that would knock your socks off. Whether it was a ballad or a comedy song, she always delivered overnight and first class. I'm sorry I only had one opportunity to work with her. Now, there's a couple of things embedded in that quote. One... uh, as as her life went on, she did suffer from depression, and she was known to be somewhat of a drinker. However, she she never lost her productivity through drinking. Well, I did read when you mentioned that she was at her desk at 9 a.m. She actually set a schedule for herself, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Mm. She worked like many of us do, you know, with a regular schedule. And that's not often the case with creative people. To conclude, we're going to listen to some of that other hit from Sweet Charity. If they could see me now, that little gang of mine. I'm eating fancy chow and drinking fancy wine. I'd like those stumbo bums to see for a fact. The kind of top drawer, first rate chums I attract. All I can say is, wow, we look at where I am. Tonight I landed, pow, right in a pot of jam. What a setup, holy cow. They'd never believe it if my friends could see me now. 
Gwen Verdon. Wow. Again, an iconic moment, an unforgettable moment yeah. in Broadway. If, if you think of the checklist of things you would want in a song, it fits right into the story. Its lyrics seem to just flow. There's a bounce to them. There's an energy. She just nails it all. Adam, thank you very much for shining a city light mm-hmm. on this remarkable contributor to the Great American Songbook. Not enough is known about her, which is why I know I'm surprising you with this, but I think you should write a play about her. <laughs> well, I am just delighted to be here, and I also agree that she needs to have bright, bright lights shine on her. Such a giant. City Lights Musical Theater and Great American Songbook expert Adam Copeland recorded at the WABE Studios in 2017. Copeland is the founder and artistic director of Flying Carpet Theater Company. He created a show about Dorothy Fields beginning this Sunday, March 6th. The Bremen Museum will stream Adam Copeland's production, Dorothy Fields, The Sunny Side of the Street. More information, including how to reserve your link for the performance, is available at thebremen.org events. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll have a day at the Atlanta Opera and hear about their upcoming production of The Barber of Seville, plus the story behind the Atlanta Opera's film, Glory Denied. City Light senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.